presented by Ridley. Now and not yet. Welcome to the Now and the Not Yet, the show where we keep you plugged in to all things about Bible and theology. I'm Scott Harrower. And I'm Mike Bird. In this episode, we're doing what is the extent of God's love for people? We're doing the question of the limited or unlimited nature of Jesus' death on the cross. We're also thinking about politics and religion, how the two might work out. We're thinking a little bit about Calvinism as well. Mike, is it true that God loves the whole world? Well, there's types of love, isn't there, Scott? There's different types of love. The love I have for my children is different from the love I have for my favourite movie. So there's there's degrees of love. And maybe maybe God has different – maybe God loves the whole world uh, in a certain way, but maybe he loves his elect a certain way and he loves his son a certain way. So are there, are there like degrees of God's love? Is God's love the same for everyone? Do you think that deep down a lot of people have got a suspicion that God fundamentally just doesn't love everyone enough? Oh, I think some people certainly feel that. I mean, people can wonder, you know, does God love me? Am, am, mm. am I lovable by anyone, even God? But the Christian message is that God does love everyone. I mean, this It'd is... It'd be nice if there was a Bible verse that just oh, told you that I know, clearly. I know. I mean, but where? Oh, wait. It's uh, John 3.16. <laughs> God loves the whole world yes. that he gave his only son. So that's kind of big love if you love the world to the extent that you give your own son. Yep. That and is, that's not on a bad day when you when we sometimes as parents would give away our own children if we're yeah, annoyed. Yeah. Um, but he, he loves his son, his only begotten son. Yep. Loves his loves church. The, loves yep. the church. Yep. Loves the, the Jewish people as well. Special yep. love for, for Israel. So if he gives his own son to the world out of love, mm-hmm. why would some people think that God isn't interested in dying for the sins of the whole world? In Christ, so I think some people have point out to certain problems. Like you've got the problem they say of double payment. This is a serious problem, Scott. Okay. Because if Christ dies for our sins, for the sins of the whole world, for the sins of the whole world, yes. And if Christ's death is effective for expunging those sins, then surely that universal atonement must lead to universal salvation. Because if he dies for the whole world, if their sins have been taken away, then there's no grounds for God to condemn anyone. Right. So that, I think, is one of the big objections. Uh, you've got the problem of double payment because if he then um, punishes people in you know, everlasting judgment, you know, however we think of that, that means he's, he's punished them twice. He's punished people for the sins of the world and the death of Christ. Uh, but then he punishes them again mm. in e- eternal damnation or you know whatever it is uh, if they f- fail to believe. So some people say, well, you can't have universal atonement because that must lead logically either to double payment, double punishment, or universal salvation. So some people prefer to say, well, Christ died only for the elect. Well, that kind of does line up with some passages in John where it speaks about the shepherd coming for his own and laying down his life for his own. So maybe God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son for a certain amount, like specific number of people only. Yep. Uh, The problem is there are other passages in the Bible which suggest that Christ died 
for the whole world. And now, you know, it's not just John three sixteen; it's you know one John two two, where it says he uh, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not only our sins, right, but for the sins of the whole world. Mm. So, I mean, that's the type of thing that people wrestle with, and I think this comes down to ha- having to make sense, find a coherent way of wrestling with what we find affirmed in the New Testament about the nature, scope, and the efficaciousness of Christ's death with the logic of certain theological systems. Now, I have to say limited atonement makes perfect sense in the logic of the Calvinistic system. So limited atonement is the belief that Jesus only dies for a limited amount of people for the and elect. his death is only effective for that yes. group of people. So so Christ's death is only intended for and only effective for those who are eternally and divinely predestined mm. unto salvation. Which would be Calvinists. Yeah, so as the logic of that makes perfect sense. Mm. The problem is I think Scripture runs roughshed over that logic yeah. and unfortunately Scripture is not as consistent as some of the systems well, that we fortunately construct. fortunately it isn't. <laughs> fortunately it isn't. Uh, but even people within the Reformed tradition have wrestled with this. Now obviously many people might know uh, Jacob Arminius uh, and Jacob Arminius was Reformed. He was a, a popular Protestant pastor uh, in the Netherlands and I think he was trying to maybe not do a 180 on the Protestant Reformation, but I think he was trying to do a 90-degree turn yeah. uh, to try to take it in a different direction. He wanted to bring back some things like an emphasis on divine love, um, uh, the scope of God's mercy. But he's not faith, the Faith and, and agency. Yeah, faith. And faith is so it's God's purposes plus faith yes. that put you in communion with God and his saving benefits. Yeah, yeah. And Jacob Arminius was responsible for the creation of the Remonstrant churches, which were a type of um, uh, minority movement with Dutch Protestantism. But there were others too. Well, can I tell a funny story about others? Tell us the others. I was studying French in the States and we had a professor of Protestant history as our French lecturer. Yep. And for our readings, as we learnt French, he would have us read about the persecution of these deviant, deeply deviant French people. And I'm French heritage, so I understand how deviant the French, French can, can be. be. Yes. yes. Um, but these were theological deviants. And apparently the theological deviants that we were reading about believed that God loved the whole world to the extent that he gives his son for the whole world and he made available salvation for the whole world but then you had this human agency that could have faith and avail themselves of God sacrificing his son on the cross. And did this deviant group have a name? They did. They were called Amiraldians. Amiraldians, yep. And they go back to a chap called Moises Amaral. Now, uh, Amaral was a uh, French Protestant pastor and teacher. He had a few different um, influences, particularly from people in Scotland, And what Amaral was trying to do was to try to um, rejig Calvinism a little bit by reconfiguring um, uh, the the covenants in such a way you could have a strong view of God's sovereignty and even predestination, but still have it that Christ dies for the whole world in a very real sense. And a number of things Amaral does, he emphasizes not just the sovereignty of God, but he's really big 
on the goodness of God. Mm. And that's something he felt was lacking in Calvinism. Yes, we know God is sovereign, but he's also good. And he really likes the topic as well of divine mercy. So he says, look, maybe there's two covenants. There's one covenant God has to save all people on the condition of faith. Yeah. So kind of like come as you are. If you've got faith, you can be saved. Mm. But to make sure some people do get saved, he has another covenant that he will definitely save yes. uh, the elect. And yeah. he will bring them to the point of faith mm. through the Spirit if he has to. So he has a sort of bicovenantal structure uh, that he posits in in in, in the logic of, of God's plan and purposes to account for both things. Now, there is a little formula that people use when it comes to talking about the atonement, and that is to say that the atonement is sufficient for everyone. So in theory, uh, the atonement makes everyone in the world savable, but it's only efficient or effective for the elect. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Everyone agrees with that statement, that's, that the atonement is sufficient for all but efficient for the elect. The problem is everyone has very different ideas about how you become the elect right. and and there lie in the differences. Uh, to finish off, Scott, what do you like about that formula and, or, and how would you explain it? I, I like the formula. It's sufficient for all because yep. it does pick up the universal scope of the atonement yep. you find in Scripture. And it is efficient for the elect. So what I like about the formula is that it's able to capture what the New Testament says. Uh, it can include it very well. There's a great analogy by our friend Oliver Crisp about how this might work. Okay. And it's an analogy to do with vaccines. Yep. It's like God makes the salvation vaccine available for everyone through the death of his son. Yep. But it's up to people to avail themselves of the vaccine. Not all will do so, but God enables the elect to do so. Okay. So they, the elect, receive the vaccine that saves them, that has been made available to all by the death of Christ, but not received by all because not all are motivated by God to receive it in faith. Should we call that the Dr. Fauci view of the atonement? The Dr. Va Fauci view of the atonement. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, from Oliver Crisp, that would be a very crisp analogy. It would be a crisp analogy. That's so true. let me ask you this, Michael. Can one be reformed or Calvinist and affirm universal atonement? Yes, because the early phase of the Reformation, they did. The Lutherans believe in universal atonement. The Anglicans believe in universal atonement. And they are reformed churches. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, people want to define uh, reformedness largely in light of the Synod of Dort. Okay, And the Synod of Dort was a big thing, but that is only one show in a much bigger circus that represents the reformed tradition. So are you making a distinction between reformed as in affirming TULIP, the acronym TULIP, versus Reformational, which is includes Lutherans and Anglicans. Exactly. And there is a thing called the World Reformed Fellowship, which is bigger than the Westminster Confession and the Synod of Dort and includes Lutherans, Anglicans. So the Reformed tradition is bigger than both Westminster and the Synod of Dort, and I think it's worth remembering that. Let me ask you a controversial and difficult question. Do you lose anything by dropping limited atonement from Calvinism? I don't think uh, you have to accept that the logic of the system 
good as it is, we all love the system, uh, but it just doesn't work when you apply to scripture because mm. you've, you've then got to do some really weird gymnastics to say, okay, Christ died for all kinds of people or every type of people, which is, you know, Christ died for all people means Christ died for all people. Yeah. Uh, simple as that. And th- th- so I think what you gain is a, a system that might be messy. Maybe all the threads don't apparently line up neatly as you would like, but it still resonates better or it fits onto the fabric of Scripture better. Also, I think it gives you a better license and a better impetus for evangelism. Yeah, great. Okay. So you don't lose anything. But you gain a lot. You I think gain you, a lot. You've got a, a much more biblical theology when it comes to the atonement, and that is worth keeping. Mm. Hi, friends. Hope you're enjoying the show. And if you are enjoying it, hit that subscribe button. And don't forget to share with your friends if you think they'll enjoy it too. And especially, leave a comment or question. We'd love to hear from you. Scott, speaking of Calvinism, uh, one thing that people, I think, get wrong with Calvin is that Calvinism isn't just a soteriology, like what must I do to be saved? Um, You know, people major on like the tulips. But Calvinism, it's it's a system of theology, but it's also a type of civilization because if you read Calvin's Institutes, particularly Book 4, he's got a lot on how to run a Protestant city. Well, that's what he did in Geneva. I know, I know. So the project was running a city. Yeah. Um, So Calvinism isn't just kind of, you know, I believe in divine predestination or the extent of the atonement. It's it's, it's a type of civilization. And, I mean, that's, that's what... That's what people often don't realize. You know, when you say, I'm a Calvinist, I think, oh, so, you know, you believe a, a, a group of uh, Presbyterians should appoint magistrates to run your town. You know, pe- people people don't often get onto that side of it. Or you believe that the magistrates, like, you know, Anthony Albanese, has the authority to convene a synod to discuss different matters of interest to the church and the state. I mean, very few people go for that type of thing. So it's a total system in, in which... People like Kuiper want to affirm yeah. that Christ looks at everything in creation and affirms yeah. that it's his. That's, that's Abraham Kuiper, former yeah. uh, Prime Minister of the Netherlands. And th- this is why you would have sorts of youth groups and societies. And I love the uh, the Reformed churches in America because they had youth groups with the best best names. Okay, go they're, on. They're, they're like, uh, I would say the equivalent is like Girls' Brigade or... or um, Boys' Brigade? Uh, yeah, well, the Girls' Brigade or what do you call it? Like um, Girls' Friendship Club or whatever they call it. Girl uh, Scouts. Yeah, whatever they call it. In, in, uh, in America, in the Reformed church, it was called the Calvinettes. The Calvinettes was. I, they I mean, really call it the. It Calvinettes? was called. I mean, it sounds like a 1960s Motown group, the Calvinettes. <laughs> but that, that's what it was. It was the Calvinettes. So you had like a, a girls' youth group called the Calvinettes. But even better for the boys, they had the Calvinist Cadet Corps, Ooh. which sounds like a Dutch Reformed paramilitary <laughs> youth does. group. Yeah, and. Um, I think they wore brown shirts. God's invasion army. Wow. So uh, look, maybe maybe there's some people watching this, you know, uh, who who were in them. We're not we're not mocking them. We just think it's a kind of funny name, the Calvinists and the Calvinist Cadet Corps. Yeah, I don't uh, think our youth groups are called that here. Oh, we have like well, Boys Brigade is a military name. Boys Brigade is a military name because yes. there's a you know, battalions, brigades. Yeah, division. but normally our youth groups are like. Teen zone and yeah. and engage, you know, and uh, thrive. Yeah, something <laughs> something so cheesy you could dip a nacho yeah, but into it's it. It's ordered towards life, not like 
Cadet Corps invasion group from above. It's not that. <laughs> true. That is true. Uh, but, I mean, how you either run a civilization or participate in one is a big issue. So you're saying there's a deeper issue of well, you've got to address, cultural engagement here. You've got to address the question, I mean, how do I interact with the state authorities uh, what is the ideal state and where do Christians, where does the, the church fit into it? Well, the ideal state would be a theocracy, right, where Are the you... kingdom of God is fully expressed Oh, well, well yeah, long, as, long as Jesus is there running yeah, it, yeah. it's the guys apart from Jesus running it <laughs> I'm a little bit worried about. Um, you know, for example, uh, there is there is a big thing today about Christian nationalism and I've always thought Christian nationalism is a bad thing. Do you want to define Christian nationalism? Christian nationalism to say that the, the state should be run by Christians to be explicitly Christian. Okay. And what's the problem with that? Well, um, what does that mean for people who are not Christian or not the right type of Christian? Like I tell my uh, American friends who believe in Christian nationalism, I say, yeah, we should be Christian nationalists run by Anglicans, will forcibly baptise your babies, and <laughs> you'll only be allowed to worship using the um, uh, the uh, Book of Common Prayer. That Sounds will be the like only, 1630. Sounds great. The only legal form of worship would be that which uses the Common Prayer. So okay. tell me tell me how you love your Christian nationalism now. All right. Well, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> well, <laughs> unfortunately, some of the people who champion Christian nationalism, they do have some problems with both the baptising of babies and the forcible imposition of the Book of Common Prayer. So they Prayer. want like a Baptist Christian nationalism? It seems to be, well, that with a kind of Pentecostal prophetic edge to it. There seems to be something along those lines. Gee, but the, the news would be good, wouldn't it, in the evenings? <laughs> Imagine the news in a Baptist, Pentecostal, Christian nationalist context. Yes, it'd the, be, it'd be the Supreme Leader prophesizes more blessings <laughs> in agriculture for the coming year. Uh, I don't That's know. That's awesome. I don't know. But whenever they've done it, it's done better. I mean, the, the I mean, you see this, the danger of Constantinism, the downside of Christendom. Now, I don't think Christendom was all bad. I think there was pro and con. Neither do I. I think it was largely great. Uh, in in many respects, in many, but it wasn't perfect. Well, I, th I think Christendom was better than the alternatives, which are communism and caliphate. Or oh, just paganism, like now. Yeah, yeah. again, communism, caliphate, paganism, I think Christendom was better, but it was not perfect. It led to, you know, European colonialism, led to a whole bunch of bad things. Um, but if we're not going to be Christian nationalists, like, you know, make Australia Christian again or make America Christian again, because uh, I think that leads to a superficial and very cultural nominal Christianity. I learned this from John Stackhouse. He said the biggest difference between um, American evangelicals and evangelicals in other parts of the world is American evangelicals believe they have a divine right to be in charge. They should be in charge of America. They should be ruling it. And the fact that they are not means the country has been stolen for, from them. Can't you and be they've got to get it back. heavily involved by being the yeast that transforms the dough? That's sort of my approach. Like the yep. more Christians you have in society, the healthier it will be because those Christians will, as well, they go, permeate through, permeate work through. towards yeah. human flourishing. You don't have to be in charge, but you can be a wonderful principal in your school. Yeah. Right? Bringing love and holiness to that place. That's unreal. Yeah, I agree. But on a Christian nationalist side, all the official apparatus of government and bureaucracy have to be controlled by Christians and for Christians. Why, why does it have to be? Uh, because if you don't, it means you're not in control anymore. 
Where, like, where's that in the Bible? Uh, well, it's not, uh, but that doesn't seem to bother them too much. Well, I think it should. If you're trying to build a nation that's Christian and parts of the fundamental beliefs there don't line up with the Bible, that doesn't make much sense. But here's the other thing. Is this something of a Western problem? Because Christians in India don't say, well, India is a Christian country and we need to take this nation back from all these godless Hindus who have taken away from us. Well, I grew up in Argentina and worked there as an adult as well and the Argentine Christians don't argue for Christian Argentine nationalism. Exactly. So it's a uniquely Western and maybe it's more of an Anglo phenomenon. Mm. What is going on? But I, I don't think Christian nationalism is a good idea. But what's the alternative? I mean, do we just kind of, you know, sit back and, um, you know, withdraw into our own introspective communities, start our own book club? You can't do that because you're called to love and holiness in every situation, whether it's at the petrol station, at school, at uni, at the rugby club. Like you are engaged in society yep. and you're called to be Christ-like in every situation. So you can't just abandon the pagans or whatever. Like you're called mm. to be involved. But what? How do you have that difference between seeking to be a Christian influence, yeah, and being lustful for the ring of power? I mean, what's what's the difference? What, when do you know have you crossed the line? So how do we be that sultan, that salt through all things, the light of the world, the city on the hill? What's the difference between that and a sort of naked, brutal pursuit of power? Uh, well, one is a virtue, love, and the other one's a vice. I think that's exactly <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. But here's the thing: a lot of people who are doing one, they're doing the the naked pursuit of power, but they may think they're doing it out of virtue, and there's so, the problem: they cannot see their vice, they cannot see that their vice, or they cannot see that their they think their vice is a virtue. Is that because they have a consequentialist ethics, and that the outcome, i.e. Christian nation uh, overrides the the means. I, I, to I get think there. it might be the uh, the end justifies the means. Make yeah. make Amer- America Australia. I don't know Madagascar. So that's that's Christian the again. classic problem with consequentialist ethics. You don't think about commands and character. Well, that definitely is a problem. Yeah, that definitely is a problem. But uh, yeah, there's many problems on church and state. Um, in fact, in a minute, we'll solve one more. Let's do it. One of the great things about John Calvin is his commentary on the Gospel of John, yeah. 1559. Uh, what I really like about his commentary is that he begins with the eternal relationship between the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's good Trinitarian stuff. Yeah, it is good Trinitarian uh, stuff. Yeah. And then he tries to unpack how the love uh, that Christ brings to the world and the holiness that comes through Christ then has communal outcomes. Yeah as he works through Jesus' commands for his community. Yep. And I think what Calvin really valued in the 1500s was being able to reform whole cities and not do a piecemeal approach to converting people groups. So he, okay. he wanted the whole city, every aspect of it, to encourage Christian growth. Yep. School education to how they treated drunks who were vomiting in church. Yep. Everything went together to try to lead to flourishing under Christ. Now, the advantage he had was that most people in his city were Christians. Yep. So there was a, uh, a legitimizing factor 
that most people ideally would want to grow as Christians. Yep. And so he was putting in the hard yards of actually thinking through, well, how do we do this in church, in education, the law courts, and even in our hospitals? So, so, so it's, a, it's a comprehensive Christianity. Yeah, and, and like there's a lot that's really good about it. Yep. It's consistent and coherent. But, it, but it, it can lead to a theocracy and it can be open to abuse. So if people don't turn up to church, do they get fined? Do they get yeah, like put compelled. in the stocks? Yeah, yeah. So it, it can lead to some coercive behaviour. Yeah, but just behavior. because something can lead to problems, like education, mate, like the, can lead to coercion and, and abuse and stupidity. I mean, look at the stuff that's going through academia right now. Oh, We're yeah. not going to dump the whole project. And it seems to me that some people are too quick to dump Calvinism and the Reformed Project yep. and church and state relationships because you've got problems. Okay. Well, can I pose a question to you then, Scott, given that Calvinism is like a, a type of civilization, uh, if Calvin, this is a hypothetical. Yeah, sure. If Calvin had a choice between living in, uh, in Russia under Putin uh, or living in uh, France under Macron, and Macron something of a, you know, he's a baptized agnostic, or living under a Hindu in the UK with, you know, uh, Rishi Sunak. Right. Where would you think Calvin would rather live? So Calvin flees Paris because he wanted to bring reform that yep. simply was not possible. So I don't think he'd hang out with Putin because okay. he, he'd realise that that's just impossible. Okay. Reform's impossible. Uh, under Putin, yes. Under Putin, okay. So. Then he, he goes to uh, Geneva. It doesn't work out because he tries to be the hard man. Yeah. He, he tries to be Putin. Yeah. Goes to Strasbourg and he sort of, he learns the ways of Macron, I guess. Okay. He learns to be gentle, a bit more loving, a bit more open yeah. about things. The charm offensive. Yeah. Well, as much as Calvin could, okay. the charm oh, no, no. offensive. You, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Uh, look, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that that's... That's where you start to see a change in his style and lots of people have commented on this. Yeah. He, there's a change in his style. And then he goes, gets invited back to Geneva yep. as the nicer version, Calvin 2.0. Calvin 2.0. So maybe that's where he... Lessons were learned. Lessons <laughs> Mistakes were Mistakes were made, yeah, but I'm back. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so maybe in a more Sunakian, he certainly needed more friendly English types around him. Yep. As he grew older and tried to expand the influence of a God-centred ethical life throughout Calvin, throughout okay. Geneva. Okay. He certainly needed that. Now, having said that, he'd be more comfortable with the English Hindus. Yep. Uh, it's important to notice that the reason why Reformed theology spreads throughout the world but Lutheranism doesn't is that Reformed theology, a lot of people have said, is like a virus, and this is a positive analogy, not a negative one. It's a virus that can adapt to context. Okay. So you'll find Reformed people all throughout South America, where I grew up. Yep. At, but, the, but they're Argentine Reformed churches, and they're good and they're healthy, and they look quite different to the way that the theology is being played out locally in Geneva and in Michigan, yep. in the States. But they're still committed to the common good, Christian soteriology and an overarching vision of God's flourishing with humanity. Okay. But it's locally applied. So that's that's one of the great things about Calvinism is that it, it can exist away from its original French culture where Lutheranism is so tied to the German culture from which it came that you only find it in small pockets that are basically still Germanic in culture. 
Okay, that's good. So I, I, can, I appreciate some stuff in the reform tradition, uh, but we still haven't really got into the church-state relationship. That's where we're and, going. And that's where I want to. I want to ask a question because in the in the United Kingdom, uh, the Church of England, the bishops have had a big discussion about should we have same-sex marriages performed in churches, and they've kind of gone for a bit of a fudge. It's like, okay, well, well, we'll have blessings for same-sex partnerships, relationships, marriages, but we're going to stop short of same-sex marriages. Okay, so they'll do bless, they'll bless relationships and marriages, but they won't consecrate same-sex marriages in English churches. And there's a lot of people... So you're saying they're good enough to bless as in ask for God's anointing and... Favour, kindness, mercy. Favour, kindness, mercy. On- I, I don't want language, but they won't consecrate same-sex marriages in English churches. But there are some members of the House of Commons who would like uh, the government to order the church to perform same-sex marriage in Church of England Why? Why, why is that a consistent position? Because the uh, it's been said the church's refusal to do this is causing trauma and harm to the LGBT community because they won't either bless or consecrate same-sex marriages. And for me, this leads to the argument, should the Church of England be de-established to make sure that the government, the British government, can never be coercive in matters of religion? How about the Church of England gets its act together and gets healthy enough so that it can engage in this debate from a position of strength? Um, that would be good. That would be ideal, yeah. uh, that if they had a consensus on this yeah. and they stood. I mean, because you've got the problem, whatever the English believe, you've also got the problem, what does the global church believe? Right. And the global Anglican communion, uh, 80%, I think, is not in favour Definitely. of same-sex uh, marriages being blessed in church. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of pastoral issues there, I know. Uh, but that, that I think, is, so, that's, so, so even if they did go for it, but is the Church of England too closely connected to the British government? And is there the problem that one day the British government will start telling the Church of England what it believes about Christian beliefs, ethics, and things? And the only way to be fully safe from that is to be de-established where positions, bishops, archbishops, key parishes are no longer um, uh, presented or defined uh, by the crown Mm. but by the parishes, the synods, the dioceses themselves. Yeah, sure. So obviously I think it's unhelpful if non-Christians are appointing Could have a Hindu appointing the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Right. That's an interesting, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that is. And that's not ideal at all. But I wonder whether before decoupling from the state, whether there is an opportunity here yep. to to pray for revival, get your act together yep. and build such a house that contributes to the common good, that it's recognised as such, it's distinctly Christian, it's not just a secular thing, um, and it's strong enough to say this is our house, we appoint our own. That, I mean, uh, for me that's the ideal because I think you lose so much by decoupling, so many opportunities yep. to be involved in society mm-hmm. at a key point. Remember, if, if we think of like construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, our Western civilization is going through a period of deconstruction right now. And I think we can play great roles by staying involved to stop the bottom being as dark as what it could be. Okay. Well, that's, so, that's so fair I, enough. I'm a that's remainer. 
You're a Remainer. I'm a Remainer. Uh, I'm more of a Brexiteer. Okay. Well, I want to hear from the people out there. Remain. Do you think uh, the Church of England should be de-established so it's no longer an arm of the state? So we'd love to hear in the comments your thoughts on that topic. Well, Scott, uh, on... Reform theology, church and state, politics, that kind of thing. A few yep. books I want to recommend. Do it. Somewhat self-indulgently, there is my own. I've never been one to must promote. Must be amazing. Must, I've never been one to promote my own books. Uh, but religious freedom in a secular age, I actually think secularism is a good thing because secularism means the state doesn't tell you how to do your religion and it also means we don't live in a theocracy. Okay. Uh, wait, actually, the kind of secularism we're under here in Melbourne is yeah, well, telling us how to behave. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that's not the ideal. There are different so you types. You can take a secularism and flush it down the toilet. There are Mike. different types of secularism. It's not all North Korea. There are healthy versions of secularism. But in terms of reform theology under a totalitarian government. So for Melbourne, um, yeah. Yeah, great. there is this great book, Faithful Disobedience by Reform Pastor Wang Yi. Okay. And uh, he, he's a reform pastor. He's you know very much in the reform tradition, and he's he's currently in prison for his disobedience to the state. Where uh, in China, right. and he refuses to join the state-sanctioned churches in in China, um, the Three Self Patriotic Movement. He refuses to join the state churches, and he wants he wants to worship in freedom. And so, out of a reform theology. He's thinking about the separation of church and state and why there should not be state coercion in matters of religion. And mm. I can say for 2023, this is easily one of the best books I've read this year. I found this a very stimulating mm. read about church and state, not in a Western context, yeah. but under a totalitarian government in a non-Western context. So uh, this is easily one of the top things to read this year. So there we go, books on religious freedom, church and state political theology, Calvin, Reformed uh, tradition, all that thing uh, and more. Uh, yeah, so that's some good stuff. So we've covered some good things. Uh, yeah, don't forget to like, subscribe, uh, leave a comment and we'll hear what you think about the show.